Welcome to the Paperback Show. I'm Ricky Lee Grove, and this week we'll be looking at the history of the sex paperback with a focus specifically on the 1960s. Vintage paperback dealers and collectors started using the term sleaze paperback in the mid-1990s, but to everyone in the industry at the time, it was called a sex novel in paperback. We'll also profile the sex novelist Ori Hitt, the poet of sleaze, and discuss his novel Wild Lovers with authors Cody Goodfellow and Kim Vodica. Sex Life of a Cop Seaport Stud Flipside Lover Swing You Swappers Sin Eaters Pit Stop Nympho Wild Lovers These are just a few of the thousands of sex paperback published roughly from 1960 to the early 1970s. Although the start date of the sex paperback is ambiguous, the end date is clear. The 1966 Supreme Court decision in favor of William Handling, publisher of Lust Pool and Shame Agent, essentially ended book censorship in America. It took 30 years from the prosecution of James Joyce Ulysses and D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover in the 50s for the floodgates to hardcore pornography to be opened. This ended the golden age of the sex paperback a book with recognizable characters and plot, and some sex along with a bright, tawdry covers. What exactly is a sex paperback? There's no simple answer to this question, but we can compare it to softcore, or the exploitation film which ran parallel to paperback publishing. What we were writing, as the writer Robert Silverberg put it, he wrote sex novels under the pseudonym Don Elliott, for Chicago publisher Nightstand Books, were straightforward novels of contemporary life with very mild interludes of sexual activity every 20 or 30 pages. Silverberg wrote a staggering 150 sex novels over a five-year period, 1959 to 1964. Now, that's pretty much one every two weeks. And he wasn't alone. There were a number of writers who wrote an equal amount of sleazy stories in the period from 1960 to 1978. So why did he put himself through this stressful workload? Why, money, of course. Silverberg earned initially $600 for each novel he wrote. That's roughly $5,800 in today's dollar. Eventually, he got $1,200 a book. He became a very rich man, along with his publishers. At that time, the demand was high for sex novels, so much so that publishers couldn't keep up with it. Now, today, these novels are purchased primarily for the cover art. But back then, people actually read the books. The throwaway nature of the paperback made them easy to buy, easy to read, and easy to hide. I remember many times while working at the Iliad Bookshop the wife or children of a baby boomer father who had just passed away would come in with a box of paperbacks and hem and haw over the naughty paperbacks, as they called them. They checked the prices online of some of the books and were willing to cope with embarrassment in order to make some money. Of course, we bought up the whole bundle for half of what we were going to sell them for. After World War II... There was a decline in paperback sales due to the fact that returning GIs, and the general public as well, suddenly had all of their wartime restrictions lifted, and the focus was on other things than paperbacks. There was an atmosphere of excitement in the years 1946 to 1948 because jobs were plentiful, the economy was booming, and America had emerged as the most powerful and influential country in the world. Morals relaxed to some extent. So when paperback publishers realized they had to do something to stay profitable, they turned to the oldest cell in the world, sex. One paperback illustrator put it this way, the word was out to make your paperback cover sexy. It made sense since paperbacks were sold like magazines. The cover art was the way the paperback book stood out from others, and that was the first step to getting the money out of the person's pocket and into the hand of the publishers. Sexy covers, even lurid covers, prevailed starting roughly in 1948. 
Sexual mores began to change even during the staid and stable 50s. Even mainstream fiction emphasized sex. Think Peyton Place by Grace Metalius with its portrait of middle-class sexuality. But it would take a swinging 60s to usher in the true golden age of the sex paperback. You know, America has always had entrepreneurs of smut. Mostly they stayed under the radar because while America could accept violence to some extent, sex was sinful and perverted. It was part of our Calvinist Christian heritage to see fictional depictions of sex as immoral. But in the real world, men, primarily, and women were very interested in sex. And the underground market for sex novels, both hardback and paperback, proliferated. Now, there were two types of publishers with sex paperbacks, mass market publishers and secondary publishers and distributors. Publishers like Beacon, Grove Press, their Black Cat series, Tower, and Lancer were example of the mass market side. Now, remember, these books were not distributed in mainstream bookstores, but like magazines, they were sold at newsstands, drugstores, and cigar stores. The secondary market was a shady world of publishing and distribution that focused on specialty stores, mail order, and the emerging adult bookstore in the 1960s. Now, I say shady because the local police would regularly arrest and confiscate stock. So many publishers changed names, authors used pseudonyms, and phony corporations were set up to enable payments to authors and distributors. Some of the secondary market publishers include Greenleaf, Nightstand, Cozy Books, Cozy Up to a Cozy Book, and Baseline. One noted history of sex novels lists approximately 165 secondary publishers. At the end of the 60s, there was a study released by the federal government, the Lockhart Commission, who indicated that for an outlay of $4,000 in production costs, authors, editors, fees, $500 shipping, a print run of 30,000 copies of a sex paperback would cost them 15 cents a book. Now, prices ranged from 95 cents to $1.95 for each book, so you do the math. That's a lot of money, especially if you're publishing 10 to 15 books a month. Mail order was a big business because ads were placed in all kinds of catalogs, which reached many rural locations. The dropship method of shipping was often used to sell sex paperbacks. Here's how that worked. A publisher would have their own name and address put in a dealer's catalog. And then when an order came in, the publisher would make out a label and send it to the dealer with one half of the remittance. The dealer was grateful for the to the address to add to their mailing list in addition to the payment, and they would send out the book. Since so much profit could be made with writing and publishing sex novels, many, many people wanted a piece of the business despite the risk of arrest and jail time. The fly-by-night publisher of sex novels would sell books with no indication of who the publisher is on the book. And some publishers actually took their unsold books which usually had the covers ripped off, glued on a new cover with a new title, and sold it as a new book. Now, I've been lumping the softcore sex paperbacks and the adults-only paperbacks into one, but there was a difference. Many of the adults-only, and they usually had this phrase in the cover of the book, catered to specific types of sex. Gay, lesbian, fetish, and bondage themes were prevalent in this type of sex paperback, although there was a lot of crossover between the two types. And the writers and the readers were primarily men. However, I suspect there were more female writers and readers because of the widespread use of pseudonyms at the time. And there were a surprising amount of well-known authors who wrote for the sex paperback market. This was especially true in the science fiction field. When the science fiction magazine and digest markets blew up in the late 50s, many science fiction authors who were writing regularly for these markets suddenly were without a way to make a living. Harlan Ellison, Robert Silverberg, along with other authors like Donald Westlake, John Jakes, Harry Whittington, and Andrew J. Offutt, they all wrote under pseudonyms and made a good living writing sex novels, some even getting rich. 
Now, we know this now because paperback historians, collectors, and dealers have ferreted out their names, and in some cases, the authors themselves have written candidly about writing smut. And, of course, there's Ed Wood, the mind-boggling director of such films as Plan 9 from Outer Space. He wrote for the sex novel market and was quite prodigious. Collectors still haven't ferreted out all of the pseudonyms he used, and his sex novels sell for astronomical prices today. I first discovered the power and sheer shock of the sex novel paperback cover when I attended the annual LanceCon paperback convention in Portland, Oregon in 1998. Lance Case Bear a renowned collector of paperbacks, had, in addition to his attic, which was full of mainstream publishers' books, a small, slightly dirty room which housed his smut paperback collection. All of the spines were bright pinks and yellows and greens and blues, which made it look like a candy store. And when you pulled out a book to look at the cover, they would be shockingly bright and lurid. They were like an entirely new world to me, I kept returning to this room during the three-day convention and discovered new authors and artists each time. And when I did, I'd just go to someone who knew about it at the convention and ask them, and they'd tell me all about it. Some of the great sex novel cover artists are Eric Stanton. They have to be seen to be believed. Gene Bilbrew, an African-American fetish art illustrator, Robert Bonfils, Bill Ward, Isaac Paul Rader, a favorite. There were many cover artists for mainstream paperbacks whose covers were made more sexy in order to attract buyers browsing through magazines or sprinter racks. Or spinner racks. The list of these GGA, good girl art, and BGA, bad girl art, artists are too numerous to mention here. But some of the most interesting artists were James Avati, Rudolf Bilarski, Robert McGinnis, a big favorite, Barry Phillips, and Norman Saunders. Collectors love the paperback covers created by these artists. In fact, sex novels are collected today primarily for their fascinating covers. And I just want to make a special mention of Barney Rossett and Grove Press. Barney brought the failing Grove Press in 1951 and turned it into a main publisher of avant-garde literature. He published authors like Malcolm X, Beckett, Albee, and Jean Genet, but he also published novels that had a strong sexual content and pushed the boundaries of modern publishing. His publication of an unexpurgated version of Lady Chatterley's Lover in 1959 led to confiscation of the book by the post office and many lawsuits. Now, Barney decided to push the issue and spent so much money defending the novel and Grove Press in court that the company almost folded. His courage and commitment led to an easing of censorship laws that were formed in the 19th century. Grove Press published many Victorian erotic novels written anonymously. Barney Rossett was the first to publish the complete five-volume Frank Harris erotic classic My Life and Loves in paperback. Now, this is just a brief overview of the American sex paperback. Most of the information I've shared here was gleaned from an amazingly good book called Cinerama Sleaze Sex Paperbacks of the 60s, edited by B. Astrid Daly and Adam Parfrey. Not only is the book a fascinating collection of essays and histories of the sex paperback, but it's also an interesting social history of the men, primarily, who wrote, illustrated, and published these books. It's also filled with an excellent reproductions of dozens of eye-popping covers. Gary Lavisi's Paperback Parade is another great source for interviews and articles on the sleaze, smut, sex paperback. And the internet is filled with sites devoted to specific authors, cover artists, and genres within the sleaze paperback world. I'll be sure to include links to my sources in the show notes for this podcast. Now, in the second half of this podcast, we'll be focusing on one particular sex novel author, Ori Hitt, sometimes referred to as the Shakespeare of Shabby Street or the Poet of Sleaze. 
We'll also be talking about one of his books, Wild Lovers, Cozy Books 1961, with authors Cody Goodfellow and Kim Vodica. Pleasure Bound, Call Me Bad, Dial M for Man. These are the titles of some of the 100-plus paperback original sex novels written by Ori Hitt, and that's not a pseudonym, the subject of this section of the paperback show. Starkhouse, who's reprinted several Ori Hitt novels, have written what I think is the best short bio of Ori Hitt. I've added a few additional notes. Ori Hitt was born in Colchester, New York on October 27, 1916. His young life was as tough as his father committed suicide when Ori was 11. He eventually became an orphan. He worked at odd jobs, fought in World War II, and eventually started writing for the paperback market in the early 50s. He married Charlotte Tucker at Port Jervis, New York, and they settled and had four children. He wrote approximately 150 books over a period of about 14 years while sitting at his kitchen table surrounded by iced coffee, noisy children, and Winston cigarettes. Though most of his books are now categorized as sleaze novels, he perfectly captured the not-so-quiet desperation of the working class in the continual search for sex, money, and happiness. I'm no adding machine, he answered on the back cover of his book Naked Flesh when asked how many he had written. All I do is write. I usually start at 7 in the morning, take 20 minutes for lunch, and continue till about 4 in the afternoon. Hit wrote a novel every two weeks in his prime, typing over 85 words per minute. His fastest and best works were produced when he was allowed to type whatever he wanted, said his children. His slowest works were produced when publishers insisted on a certain kind of novel, extra spicy, etc. Ori borrowed themes from Kane's Double Indemnity and from Dashiell Hammett, along with other contemporary writers. Since he wrote so fast, he would use established plots and just rearrange them for his novels. He died in a VA hospital in Montrose, New York, from cancer on September 7th, 1975. And thanks for coming back, everyone. I'd like to welcome my two guests to this episode of the Paperback Show. First, Kim Vodica. Kim Vodica is the author of four full-length poetry collections, most recently The Elvis Machine, Clash Books 2020, and Dear Ted, Really Serious Literature 2022. I like that publisher's name. Mm-hmm. She also writes Erotica, and her short story, A Dirty Story As You Like It, was published in 2021 as part of the Pocket Erotica series by New Urge Editions. Originally from South Louisiana, she lives in Memphis, Tennessee, with her beloved cat, Lula. Welcome, Kim. Hi there, Ricky. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. And with and with Kim is Cody Goodfellow, an old friend. Cody Goodfellow has written eight novels and five collections of short stories and edits the Hyperpulp zine Forbidden Futures. I really like that magazine. Lisa gave me a copy of it. It's a really good job, Cody. Oh, thank you, sir. Sure. His writing has been favored with three Wonderland Book Awards for Excellence in Bizarro Fiction. you got to put that on your headstone there. Excellence in Bizarro Fiction. His comic work yes. has appeared in Mystery Meat, Dark Horses Creepy, and Slow Death Zero. And as an actor, and this is my favorite part, he has uh-huh. appeared in numerous TV shows, videos by Anthrax and Beck, and a Days In commercial. Yes. God damn, that's that's top on my list. I'm the Days In Amish farmer, bitch. <laughs> he, quote, lives in San Diego, California. They're here to discuss Ori Hit and his novel, Wild Lovers. Thanks for being on the show, you guys. 
Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Let me do a quick backgrounder on Wild Lovers Lovers before we start. Sure. Wild Lovers is a 1961 cozy book, number 145, with their uh, beautiful little catchphrase, cozy up to a cozy book, spelled with a K. (laughs) Wild Lovers is a backwood sex novel. It's a subgenre in the sex novel uh, and sleaze novel genre. Wild Lovers is about the lives and loves of several people who live in a poor rural area in upstate New York, known as Shantytown. Joy is the protagonist. She's a virgin at the beginning of the novel. Ominous uh, statement there. Orphaned (laughs) at 16 after a fire burned down the house she lived in with her parents. Because the property she owns has value to her developer who wants access to a lake where they want to build a hunting and fishing resort. She's negotiating with a leering estate agent. Joy is very well endowed and quite beautiful. Unfortunately, the negotiation ends unsatisfyingly for the agent who is desperate to get Joy into the sack. A stranger, Slim, shows up with his mistress. He's a professional artist from New York. His family owns lands on Shantytown. He finds Joy quite attractive and wants to paint her in the nude. Her old boyfriend, uh, maybe, Pug Stark, who has known her since they were kids, is jealous. He's pure white trash, and he's got a sister who is pregnant, but she doesn't know who the father is. The focus of the plot is on Joy trying to deal with three men, all who wanted to have sex with her. Pug, Slim the artist, and the real estate agent. There's lots of sex, an awful rape scene, betrayals and surprises, and a happy ending. So now, did I leave too much out of that plot summary, guys? (laughs) Well, um... Cody and I, Cody and I were talking about how a lot of the sex happens off page. Mm. Um, so, like in terms of detail, like there will be like lead up to the sex, but the actual sex is not. It's like off camera. Ah. <laughs> um, so, I thought that was interesting. Um, I, yeah. I, anything, I, anything else in the plot that I I should include? You think? Uh, I mean, most of it is, is just about, is about Joy's, Joy's struggles with, uh, what she's willing to, you know, finding her, her way in the world and struggling to go past just reacting to what these men are, are, uh, are, are pushing, uh, pushing her to do. Um, once yeah, she, she went, sorry. Yeah. She doesn't really act. She just reacts. Hmm. And she's mm-hmm. more of like a receptacle, even though she is the protagonist and like we're, you know, sort of supposed to be on the ride with her. Um, things just really happen to her. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a it's an interesting reversal for a hit because in most of his other novels, the situation is reversed. It's a man juggling several other women. But this one, he's got a woman juggling several men. I thought it was interesting. They what what did you guys think like- of the... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Go ahead. I was going to say they're kind of more like juggling her, though. <laughs> True. Like tossing her back and forth like a beach ball or something. <laughs> True. That's right. That's that's a much better perspective. What did you guys think of the wild, the uh, novel Wild Lovers overall? It was so much fun. Cody actually read it to me out loud. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so we just had a blast with it. And um, I might be jumping the gun here. Um, I think you have a question that's going to be related to. Don't worry um, about it. Yeah. It's okay. The, the difference between the way readers of its time might have approached it versus now, which is like now we like approach it with a sense of humor and, and fun that likely was not um the case for readers at the time, apart from like maybe having like the snickering delight of reading something you're not supposed to read. Right. Right. But um, yeah, it was, it was a blast. I mean, it's all, um, it's, it's flawed, <laughs> you know? Um, but um, yeah. Um, uh, overall it was, it was just a really, uh, it was a, a treat to be able to um, experience it. What's the, um, um, you mentioned it was fun to read. What, what, what exactly is fun about the book? to you okay yeah it for for one thing i mean yeah the it it of course it's not going to have uh on on the page on the page sex scenes but where it really sizzles or or where uh you can tell ori's ori's heart or at least his loins are is uh in in the in the descriptions of joy uh Mm. You know the the way she has to fight her way into her underwear and uh her her very complex 
her very complex relationship with her bra and stuff. And yes. So yes. It, and all the really, women have very small stomachs. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very much an ogler's, like a girl watcher's uh, sort yeah. of a book. And, and in the dialogue, yeah. the dialogue really sizzles. And <laughs> it, it's so campy. And, and, and that was what made it really fun to read out loud. Well, yeah, because Cody... Cody was doing all these voices for the characters too when he was reading it to me. So, oh, that's um, marvelous! Which was really funny. So, I mean, I was having a unique experience of it because of that. But, um, right? But yeah. Well, um, the the main character, the uh, the going off of the cover, the uh, the artist, the cover artist clearly modeled Pug Stark on on James Best. Uh, ah. Back when he was, yeah, you know, because he looks like he looks like Jeff Myrtlebank. From the Twilight, from the reincarnation of, of of Jeff Myrtlebank episode of Twilight Zone. Wow! So uh, um, uh, he he was also in the uh, the episode with uh, um, with Lee Marvin, uh, where he's the gunslinger, and he and he's like the town yeah. coward, and yeah. and then of course he was later he was Roscoe Coltrane on on the Dukes of Hazard. So yeah. yeah, even though it was regionally uh, regionally inaccurate as hell because this takes place in rural upstate New York. Uh, yeah, I, I went I, I leaned very heavy on the uh, on on the uh, the campy redneck voice, <laughs> stay away from stay away from that artist joy. He's bad. He's bad trouble in a big package. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. cover was awful, by the way, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially if you look at other adult covers. I mean, they're. I mean, everything is about cheap being cheap. Very much yeah. like an expo- exploitation film. In fact, the book reminded me a bit of a Russ Meyer film. It has that sure. Sort of- yeah, wink, that's... wink, wink, uh-huh. wink! Attitude all the way through, especially it, you know? with all the all the boobs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 it kind of feels like we were we were talking about this. How the the sex or romancing scenes of the scenes where where Pug is kind of trying to spark on on joy. Uh, the 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 eternal refrain is he cracked open another beer. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And, yeah, we jo- we jokingly said that the porn is actually beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's your money shot. Yeah, or the, the, yeah the, the squalor the squalor is the sex. It's kind of funny how that you know, like as opposed to a romance novel where you know the the dashing rogue is 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 holding the swooning maiden or something that they're they're both standing there waiting for something to happen, and there's a there's a tension in it that yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, if you can imagine, yeah. uh, Ori hit, you know, mm-hmm. he wrote not, he had a, had a, a very happy family with mm-hmm. several daughters and a, and a wife. He, he wrote professionally for something like 17 years, right. he cranked out almost two, 200 plus novels. Yeah. Um, and he wrote them all mo- mostly wrote them on his kitchen table while drinking iced coffee and smoking endless Winston cigarettes. Yeah. Now, and, and now he was a very short man. He was like five, three. Yeah. And, and you met almost all of the guys in his books, including wild lovers are, are all their height is always mentioned in the book. Yeah. Right. The tremendous redhead. Yeah. Slim. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think if you can imagine this guy having this sort of middle-class life, uh, middle middle to lower middle class life, and then imagining all these things, and he he borrows plots from Erskine Caldwell and Dashiell Hammett and all these people because mm-hmm. he doesn't have time to come up with them himself, and then he just rejiggers them. Yeah, he's the, you know? shake, he's the Shakespeare of Shanty Road. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or Shabby yeah. Town, as they say it. Right. Well, I think I think the way that it, because reading something like this, yeah, you have to factor in whenever whenever it kind of misses seems to miss a beat or something uh that that yeah it's it's being written under uh under you know some censorship strictures and then and then also just the expediency of how if he's cranking this thing out this quickly it kind of reminded me of uh, like almost like like philip k dick in a way that uh he's writing these really fast and so he's going to drop a lot of stitches but at the same time the raw yearning that's yes. there is something that comes across a lot more hot exactly. than if it was a more considered book. I think so too. In fact, I think there, uh, you're unconscious as a writer or a creator works when mm-hmm. you don't have time to think about what you're writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote somewhere between 80 and a hundred words per minute. Wow. And so he, he just knocked these suckers out. And right. I think sometimes his own, 
his own obsessions, his own desires, his own needs come yeah. through in the novels, even though they're tawdry and oftentimes very thinly written. Yeah. Um, they, they, they have a kind of longing in them that is really, really interesting to me. Yeah. I think yeah. that like you can almost view Slim as a stand in for Ori Hit in a way, mm. just in terms of like the artist and trying to capture the muse. And like it almost becomes this like meta fiction experience a little bit. <laughs> well, that's right. a good way to put it. Yeah. True. I like the- that. The the sequence, yeah. There's a sequence where we we uh, get into into Slim's head and we learn all about his struggles as an artist, and it felt like, uh, yeah, very much like the author putting on putting on a fiction suit to step in there to uh, e- explain some of the yeah the 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 un, un the problems that 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 he's got to face as an artist, and so that was that was an interesting piece of 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 ledger domain or 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 or, or a switcheroo in that in that because when he first shows up of course of course you hate him because he's this yeah yeah big big tall guy and everything comes uh, appears to come really easy to him and so they they allow you to, to sympathize with him and so you're thinking yeah pugs the villain and slim's the good guy but i hate him cuz he's <laughs> this big redhead with this you know big chest and his scary chain smoking drunken yeah. girlfriend. And, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was, it, it, it was, it was complicated and it, and it's, and it's fascinating that it's, that it's this hot take that comes out uh, so fast. And so the conflict isn't really very nuanced, but it's, but it's an interesting one. It's real clear. Yeah. Well, yeah. I thought uh, the uh, uh, snappy dialogue between Slim and his uh, mistress from New York Mm. Which which hit just hit decides to describe as his mistress, by the way. Yeah, um, was sort of like a low rent private lives by uh-huh. Noel Coward. You know what I mean? It was a right. repartee between each other. There was nasty, but not quite the who's afraid of Virginia Woolf nasty. You know? Yeah, well, the way Cody was doing Cherry's voice. <laughs> can can we get a <laughs> sample of that, please? Oh, to hell with you! To hell with him! He's in that room he fixed up for a studio, messing in his pants and hollering at me now and then. So I got drunk. I got plastered. Yeah. It's like Sylvia Miles if she smoked harder. Oh, that's great. That's great. I wanted to share with you a a brief little uh, piece from uh, uh, a write-up on Ori Hit that I thought was really great. Okay. Uh, Quote, his novelistic world is a portrait of 50s and 60s middle America and the people who were driven by the need for status and money. Sex is usually the fuel that powers these desires. Hit loved to write about how sex transforms and destroys everyday people. And yet, ironically, his novels almost always have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that that was interesting, you know, that um, Joy winds up with Pug in the end and, you know, there's a baby on the way and they're having this normal, happy life. Um, I just sort of don't think that's the way that story ends. I didn't think so either. Yeah. And I mean, I I do think it's believable that, you know, a person who's been sexually assaulted might even bond with their abuser. Um, or even find pleasure in the assault as a coping mechanism. Like, I don't find that unbelievable in Uh-oh, terms of you're like... fading away, Kim. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I lost you too, darling. Oh, sorry. Shoot. So, could you start that over again? Do you mind? Well, did you complete... Like, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you just... Now fine. you're back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, where should I start from? <laughs> a woman who has been sexually assaulted... Okay, yeah. Um, I don't find it unbelievable that a woman who has been sexually assaulted um, would in some ways like bond with her abuser um, or even find pleasure in the assault as a coping mechanism, which are things that kind of happen in the book. Um, Mm. I find those things believable, um, but I don't know that the story ends with her actually like marrying Pug, you know? Yeah. It, it just seems like that's like a very neatly packaged way of ending it. Right. Yeah. Well, is that, yeah, it kind of reminded me of, maybe it's just because I've been reading a lot of them lately, but uh, Cornell Woolrich's stories uh, will will put the character into an impossible, unbearable situation uh, where the, the guilt and terror and, and horror and shame all come together. And 
two pages from the ending, um, they're they're double damned and dipped and batter dipped and ready for the fryer. And then somehow they this door flies open and they spill out into the sunlight again. And you wonder if that doesn't feel like something that his editors enforced on him or, well, I know my audience wants this because it doesn't feel like that's where where Woolrich was heading. And so, yeah, I wonder if it isn't a convention of the of the book, but also it it goes into this this seedy sordid underbelly of uh of of rural life and and yet it is affirming you know it, as much as it as it's as it's it's titillated by and it wants to titillate the reader uh with with the sexuality it's still very you know it, it comes down squarely on the on the on the side of conventional values there's there's yeah. a argument against, uh, against abortion. There's, uh, uh, right. it, it chooses, you know, the, the honest trade, you know, the, yeah. the, the tradesman, the gas station guy versus the artist. Yeah. You, you can't yeah. trust artists if there's a moral yeah. of this story. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's, yeah, I, I, I can see that, that moralistically or ethically he would have wanting, he would have wanted to steer the, steer them into a safe Harbor where they end up, you know, they, they moved up into the bourgeois class. Yeah. Um, and and kind of the the threat was when Joy, after Joy, is sexually assaulted by by Pug, she suddenly becomes steely. She recognizes she has internalized the notion that her body's a commodity, and she's going to get fair value for it. If that's yeah. the, you know that's the way things are, and and yeah. so yeah, it's it's you wonder whether how much was artistic and how much was a, a question of expediency or the limitations of the genre that we've got to steer her and she's got to end up married and pregnant in a, uh, I don't in a two bedroom think there apartment. Was, uh -huh. I don't think there was much editorial supervision on the mm -hmm. books. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, he wrote for, there were two level layers of the sex novels of the sixties. There was one layer that was sort of done by generic publishers mm -hmm. who, although they struggled with uh, censorship laws and stuff, they were still being published regularly. And then yeah. there was the sort of sub, sub uh, distribution model that was done through um, uh, mailing lists and a, and a rising adult uh, bookstore, right. uh, which started in the sixties. And those were much more catering to the, the, the fetish and fantasy uh, right. uh, writers of the time. So I think the editors of that time for his kind of book were glad to just get the complete manuscript. All yeah. The time. They just put you it on a I mean? scale. Yeah. Right. It's a little light, Ori. Right. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine Maxwell Perkins going through this and, you know, carefully <laughs> nodding up. And, and I think, you know, while you were talking, you gave me this image in my head of, of Ori, little Ori sitting there <clears throat> and going on this journey, yeah. this sort of sexy, crazy, violent journey, yeah. but knowing that he can't stay out there, he's got to come back. Yeah. Yeah. He's got to come back to home. Uh-huh. It's, and, it's just peculiar that everybody wins, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It's, it's, it, yeah, it, it was surprisingly gentle given how hard the, the, the rules of life are supposed to be on Shanty Road. Everybody kind of gets as, gets yeah. better than they had any right to ask for. It's almost like it's not quite the same novel at the end as it was when it started. Sure. Sure. And I, I mean, I, this was frustrating to me as a, I, I mean, I, as a writer, I can't read a, a, a book like this without trying to figure out how I would fix it. I mean, I can't watch Barton huh. Fink. I can't watch Barton Fink without coming up with an entirely right. unique so, Wallace Beery wrestling picture scenario. So how would you fix Wild Lovers? Well, I feel like he lets people off the hook too much. There, uh, I mean, the when when Joy and Slim uh, come together, and she's she suddenly actually discovers what it's like to you know to want to be physically attracted to somebody, uh, and then uh, Pug starts hanging out with Cherry, and he tries to tries to seduce her, and that's going nowhere. But uh, they form an alliance, and they're going to they're going to scheme to try to break up Slim and Joy, and that that feels that feels like an interesting conflict. And then we we jump ahead to Slim and and Cherry uh, have you know off camera have reconciled and Slim has recognized okay yeah Cherry's my kind Joy suddenly doesn't do anything for me anymore and I'm going to rob her 
And, and he, like, he makes this switch to, to Grifter at the drop of a hat. And that was the most interesting scene in the book. That's what I would have loved to have seen is, uh. is that scene there. Likewise, one more real quick, is when the real estate agent finally confronts her and she stands her ground and she's going to get her price for that lake. For one thing, I would have hoped, I, I would have loved to see the ending go a third way if she would have decided, you know, at the end not to sell the lake to develop it with Pug and then so they'll own something. So they'll be able to have a nice place at Shanty Road and maybe a charity camp for all the Shanty Road orphans to, to swim in the lake instead yeah. of instead of just going for the, you know, the thing that was allowed. Now he's the owner of the gas station. But when the real estate agent confronts her and she tells him, I'm not that kind of girl, you should go down to this roadhouse down the road and uh, you can get whatever you want. And like he gets these stars in his eyes as if he's never heard. Wait a minute. There, there's a place where there are easy women and you just buy them <laughs> drinks. Holy crap. I haven't been living right. And he runs down the street. He's, he's saved because he didn't know such places existed. Uh, and it's, think, yeah, it's, 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 it's weird how sometimes he, he ratchets up a lot of tension and then just kind of lets the air out in ways that I, that I wouldn't have, but maybe I'm yeah, just a meaner, yeah. maybe I'm just a meaner person. I would like to see your rewrite of it. That and Kim, tell me, what would you do to fix uh, Wild Lovers, or would you yeah. would you try to fix it? Well, I mean, I I guess I would have Joy like cash in on the land, um, move to some sort of tropical um, island, and have a bunch of um, male love slaves. <laughs> Ooh. Like I would, I really want to see her win, and like on her own terms, you know? Right. Um, yeah. With the emphasis on her own terms, you know, right? And to I don't make think her that, smart. Yeah, I don't yes. think that I don't think she's capable of doing what I just said. But that's how I like to imagine her. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kim, I wanted to ask you. You know, I read that great story you wrote, uh, Plaster Caster, in Forbidden Futures, and your uh, erotic fiction was very blunt and very intensely sexual, and it was a long way from the sort of mild erotic writing of Ori Hit. What's your take on the uh, sex novels of the 60s? Do you think this type of softcore novel is still being written today? Yeah, um, I guess my relationship, like the, the type of erotica I enjoy is more on the transgressive side, um, where like so much so that the pleasure of transgression itself um, is more important than sex <laughs> mm, <laughs> or mm. anything resembling sex that might be happening. Um, sure. Because arguably there maybe isn't really any sex in Plaster Caster. But um, yeah, um, so I don't know. Um, I I guess what strikes me about something like Wild Lovers is it's kind of consumable, disposable quality. Like hmm. it's not really seemingly intended to be a work that you remember. Um, and it doesn't make really many demands of the reader it doesn't really require any work on the reader's part you know there's right. not there's not there's no real weight or gravity there's there's really not even an intellectual agenda um i mean you can maybe argue against that but um and i guess like so it's it's different for me because i usually gravitate toward um, pornographic literature that does have all of those things that I, or at least the, the transgressive nature and the intellectual agenda and stuff like that. Right. Um, so yeah, so I guess um, something like Wild Lovers feels almost shockingly tame, and I realize I know that you know we're we're um, how how many years like sixty years yeah, um, yeah. yeah in the future here and um, you know hardcore pornography exists now and has for a long time yeah on the internet you can pretty much see whatever you want yeah that's rule thirty four is that what it's called or if you can imagine it there's a porn of yeah. it um, <laughs> yeah so I guess like from like the jaded standpoint of today where like you we've either seen it all or know we have access to pretty much anything we want uh -huh. um, wild lovers yeah kind of feels kind of feels tame um and um a little safe and um kind of reinforcing of gender mores and things yeah. like that um yeah. so yeah i guess that's my that's my impression um I, I when it comes to contemporary erotica um i think there's always a market for softer core stuff even though i would i think that um overall it's probably gotten a little at least a little spicier <laughs> um, yeah, and, yeah. and 
kinkier and more explicit. Um, but I, I think that people have different um, thresholds as readers um, right. in terms of what they want and what they're. Yeah. 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 So the I, Calvinist tradition in America makes sex. That's what uh, Cody wrote in the introduction to uh, uh, the Forbidden Features, his uh, essay in praise of sex and violence, which I thought right. was really good, Cody. Thank and you. you were talking about the distinction between how the sort of double standard about how uh, American culture uh, will allow pr- pretty much any kind of violence. Yeah. But as soon as you put sex in the middle of it, it becomes this, this incredibly divisive uh, thing in which people immediately make a value judgment on it. And, right. Oh my God, you can't have that. You can't have this. Meanwhile, you know, they got people, Mike Hammer's chopping people up and shooting women in the guts and people yeah. are being dismembered and everything's fine. Right. Right. I, and I it, think that's still very but, true. You know, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it's an old old saw that if you if you touch a breast in a movie, you'll uh, you'll you'll get an X rating. But if you stab it, you'll get an R rating. And uh, <laughs> this this book, it was I I it, I was really conflicted about it because of course the the violence that happens there's there's like two two fight scenes. Of course, it happens on camera as opposed to uh, as opposed to the sex. And, and so, yeah, yeah that's, that's if you want to know, striking. yeah, yeah, it, it's like the it, it's the mere fact that you can't depict uh, the sex or that he opted not to. And also the the violence was played. Well, I mean, I guess you could say there's three acts of violence because the, there's the rape and the rape and the, yeah. and the rape is a punch in the gut. Um and and the way that it happens, uh, it very much it it isn't it isn't salacious. It's not played for voyeuristic thrills at all. We're very much on her side as far as this awfulness and the and the regret that they both feel. And then she starts to uh, kind of kind of as Kim as Kim astutely pointed out, you know, she starts to kind of process it and starts to reconcile with it. But there's a there's with this shift that happens in the in the book where Slim decides that he's going to be a cad and and then Pug is suddenly recast from, you know, the the scumbag rapist into an amateur detective and he springs into action and he confronts Slim. This is another thing that I would have changed is when he confronts Slim, we're, we're shown that, you know, Pug's a big strapping, uh, a big strapping uh, hillbilly boy. But but Slim is like a Viking. And yeah. when and and Pug manages to take him down, and we've been joking that you know, okay, yeah, how's this? What would what would make this spicy? What would be a nice curveball? Well, Slim and Pug should get it on. And- well, I mean, when <laughs> when they're fighting, like the 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 um the violence of the fight scenes is more is more graphic than the sex scenes. You yeah, know? yeah, it's, it was, it's very it's, it's very sexualized, feels, and Pug wins. It feels like I, dramatically. Uh, he's got you rooting for a rapist to beat up a mere cad, and like yeah. If, yeah. if Slim, if Slim would have kicked his ass there, then I, I think you you would have had some real drama. But I think that violence, that takedown, is clearly just playing to the cheap seats for cheers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're you're supposed to be rooting for that to happen. Yeah, yeah you kind um, of like you and, kind of feel like why don't yeah, why don't you two does, get a room? It does kind of underscore, however unconsciously, but very vividly, how uh, our our perceptions of of sex and and violence are still uh, we're we're very skewed. And uh, yeah, in my essay, I was trying to talk about how, in spite of the fact that you can see and do and consume anything out there, we still have these weird ways yeah. of perceiving. Even when we depict sex, it has to be kind of scandalous involving prostitutes and horrible consequences uh-huh. and dark uh-huh. dank strip clubs and drugs and stuff like that. It can't yeah. ever be just a healthy, yeah, vivacious um, enterprise. Yeah. I think that um, we have like a toxic relationship with sex, like um, in, in popular media and cult media and, you know, um, that I think it's still very true that people are more readily accepting of violence than sex. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even in an era where like nothing's shocking. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's a good point. The idea that somehow the two guys would get it on, uh, would be so wonderfully transgressive if the novel yes. were written, written today. However, that brings up an interesting point. Paperbacks in general, um, from 39 to about 70 avoided, uh, homosexual scenarios primarily because the readers were white straight men. 
Yeah. That, that's exactly yeah. what I thought before I even looked at the show notes. I was like, this absolutely feels like a novel written for men, like written for a male audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even, even though the, you know, it's a female protagonist juggling n- numerous men. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, if you reversed it and you had the two women get it on, they would mm-hmm. have included that. They would have included that in the novel. Oh, for real. I, yeah. I was sort of shocked that they didn't at least do something. <laughs> Yeah, that it didn't. Well, I yeah, the, I guess the way they're catty with each other, because I mean that's that's definitely a thing that you know is is titillating um, yeah. for for some, um, just women fighting each other, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. even just verbally. But. Sure. Hey, I wanted to ask you guys uh, quickly um, mm-hmm. if you could go back in time and write for cozy books, mm-hmm. what kind of novel would you write, and what would some of the titles be? <laughs> Question for both of you. Oh God. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I wrote something, I, I kind of in a similar vein, uh, I wrote a book called scum of the earth. That is, uh, like a sleaze space opera. And, and, and that's what I would have dearly loved to have written back in the, back in the sixties. Uh, uh-huh. mine was, mine was kind of riffing on the, the sleaze sci-fi space opera movies in the eighties, like Galaxina and, and, right. and stuff that, uh, that usually that that had like really corny humor and, uh, and and some kind of titillation, but still kind of almost like the 60s stuff flinched. They never even actually had nudity. Um, and uh, uh, I, so, yeah, uh, and, and Scum of the Earth is about a, a about a misfit crew of, of horny space pirates. And, uh, the, the, the captain of the ship has, uh, she pretty much her crew is just all, is all X's and you get a belt buckle after she dumps you that, that, uh, it, it basically says I stayed on for, and then it has like the, the, the minutes, hours and, and days, uh, that, that you lasted with, uh, with, with the pirate captain whose name is Callista Chrome, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, w- I would have loved to, to write, uh, 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 space pirate sleaze novels in the in the sixties, or uh, possibly a series about a time traveling android or fembot concubine who goes back in oh, history to seduce wonderful. to seduce great tyrants so that they'd mellow out and maybe change history, kind of like quantum now, quantum leap, but with but with sex. I love it. I love it. Now it's interesting you mentioned the yeah. science fiction because there wasn't much sleaze science fiction. No, there was some, but not a lot. Right. However, ironically. A lot of the uh, sex novel writers were science fiction uh, novelists. Yeah, who were, write, who were writing under pseudonyms. Philip Jose Farmer. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And Silverberg did, did an astonishing. I, I, I'm still reeling over this. For a five year period after he was introduced to writing uh, sex novels. Yeah. By Harlan Harlan Ellison, by the way. <laughs> um, he. Wrote 150 novels in five years. That wow, is amazing. Was now was, that's that's about forty thousand <clears throat> to fifty thousand words per novel. God, man. wow, yeah. Were any of them good? I don't know. He his main <laughs> pseudonym for uh, Greenleaf, I think it was. Right, was uh, Don Elliot. Right. And I've got, I just got a Don Elliot. It's called, uh, in fact, I have it right here. It's called Sin Kill. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> lust was the payoff in this passion game. Wow. <laughs> Paul loved Janet too much. He loved to spend all of his time with her, seeking ecstasy in the shameless succession of their little love nest. <laughs> so right. he wrote these things. He knocked them out of the park all the time. Which I thought was ironic because you really couldn't have sex in science fiction novels because it was all about the technology and the ideas and somehow those two things didn't blend. So I would have loved, if I was a reader in the 60s, I would have grabbed Scum of the Earth immediately. Right. I, I Yeah. I uh, Gosh, I wish Silverberg would have would have mixed or found a market to mix uh, science fiction and, yeah. and his erotica. I, I read, I remember reading image of the beast by Philip Jose farmer and uh-huh. which I think it was done in 68. And it was, right. it was so grimy that you can't believe that this guy likes sex or yeah. wants you to like sex. Although uh-huh. he did write a farmer wrote another book called flesh, uh-huh. which, which was really interesting because it was about a, a spacecraft from earth landing on a planet in which the central 
central focus of their culture mm-hmm. was a sex ritual that occurred twice a year. Wow. And, and yes, exactly. And although it had the same uh, uh, thing about where once they got to the sex, they cut away to something else. Sure. Um, the main character got him, got caught up in all of this and, and it was driven by women, by the way, which mm. I thought it was really interesting. The men are only secondary characters in it. The women run the whole thing. Uh, so that, that was one of the very few books. It was very well written. So it didn't have any of that sleaze, uh, sort of the haphazardness. Vibe. Yeah, the, yeah. The vibe to it. That's exactly right. Uh, but that was one of the few ones that I can think of. I think that was 72 or 68. So it was a little after uh, everything went hardcore, but that's right. an interesting novel. I thought. Oh, actually uh, this year says, it says it was in 60. 60. Oh, His I put sec- it in the second, second novel length publication after the green odyssey. Ah, yeah. No, this sounds wrong. like, this sounds like exactly my jam. This is sexy science fiction where they're where they're integrated and it's both things. And holy cow, that cover! Oh yeah. man, it's a great that, cover. That, that devil man smuggling plums there. Holy yeah. cow, <laughs> that's the business. Yeah, yeah. Peter Stagg and a group of astronauts leave Earth in the twenty first century <laughs> due yeah. to the benefits of hypersleep. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's really good. I should, I'll make sure I, I put a link and get the cover on that. That's I, as we were talking, I, that, that memory of reading that came up, Kim, I wanted to ask you, what about you? You now you've had time to think about titles and <laughs> what you would do because Cody was blabbing on and on. So you better come up with something good. Well, he used a pre-existing work. I, I'd have to think more about titles, but like, I guess I would like to see, and I, I mean, and this is just my, personal bias showing but I mean I like works that sexually implicate people in power so like when like the magistrate and the politician and the executioner and the um you know billionaire and Mm. you know things like that and people who are involved in these sexual scenarios that don't necessarily make them look good or at least make them look vulnerable and sort of um expose them Uh um like I I would like to see things I guess that were maybe a little, um, not just edgy for the sake of being edgy, but edgy for the sake of um, transgressing and subverting. Um, So I guess like if I was going to try and go back and write these novels, that would be my focus. And there there were plenty of works that existed. I mean, like I'm a big fan of uh, the Marquis de Sade, you know, Mm -hmm. who predates this period by a long shot and whose works were like super wild and crazy. Exactly. Um, yeah. However, you know, Grove Press was the first publisher to introduce Marquis de Sade in paperback. Okay. I, f- yeah. I think I might have known that. Yeah. So a lot of people, uh, a lot, certainly a lot of Americans, middle-class Americans, didn't really get access to uh, the Marquis de Sade until Grove Press published them. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. In fact, a lot of, uh, of Grove Press were uh, Victorian sex novels. They were published anonymously. Yeah. And they would reprint them. The Odyssey of a Fanny. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, Beardsley, Aubrey Beardsley's book, and A Man with a Maid, and things like Evergreen. I think was the, <laughs> right. Yeah. That was really interesting. But they would actually go into detail about the sex. They wouldn't. It wouldn't cut away. Like yeah. Marquis de Sade would stay right with it. Oh, That's right. yeah. the point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's funny when I was a kid, you know, and you and and poking around in in every bookshelf at any any uh, any place you happen to be staying. I think when I was about 12, I read um, or I came across the novelization of Deep Throat. Oh, and, my God. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that happened like right about uh, straight up about a decade after Wild Lovers. And and yeah, it's it, it's from a whole other planet. And and try as I might to, to uh, it still got me into trouble, you know, because, of course, you have to ask somebody because the Internet not having been invented yet. Mom, what's a hermaphrodite? <laughs> how do you, how do you fake an <laughs> orgasm? You know, uh, and then and then yeah, when you read these these British erotica things, uh, what was hilarious about those was that anybody will screw anybody at any time, 
and and they just draw lines between all the characters and and yeah. and, and and have it happen. And and the yeah, it, it does raise the interesting question of is it ultimately more satisfying to uh, to cut away? Or I mean, does yeah, it, well. Yeah, that, that's getting to what I was Go gonna ahead, say, which is like, yeah. Well, Angela Carter in um the Saudian Woman um talks oh, about I love how that book. yeah, oh, isn't it so great? Um, great. how um in a work of pornographic literature there has to be like a gap in the text, um and a gap that um where like a reader in imagination can stick their dick in. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about that in terms of the off page sex in wild lovers, like, okay, well, there could be an argument for like, okay, Ori hit is leaving that space for the reader to insert. Um, or, you know, sometimes maybe a hole is just a hole. <laughs> I, I right. don't know. Um, well- that's that's interesting because yeah, leaving room for fantasy, but also leaving room for the reader to insert themselves into it. I mean, one thing that's, that I, yeah. I mean, one thing that I, I uh, remember a, a critic observing about um, like the Twilight books and also about um, Fifty Shades of Grey, which of course started out as as uh, what is fan as fan fiction, Twilight. yeah, as Twilight fan fiction. So, is that the the thing about Bella is that she is such a blank slate. She's essentially an amusement park ride that any reader can get inside and picture themselves in and get into right, that situation. Yeah, like, like from your POV, yeah. Right, right. And so the things uh, sometimes in erotica, yeah, the stuff that you leave out uh, can very artfully make heighten the fantasy so that it sticks more in your mind after yeah. you read it. And and yeah, the uh, like the the those exhaustive just humped to death kind of kind of British erotica novels. Oh, I'm coming. Oh, fiddle dee. Oh, I die. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. they're they're exhausting. Uh, with well, they they make the sex seem kind of kind of silly and boring whereas something that that builds it up really artfully uh, and really tantalizes you uh, and then and then cuts away can set your mind on a ramp where it jumps off and catches flight. I think that, yeah, yeah think- like if, if it's too specific, if the sex is too graphic and too detailed, like it runs the risk of kind of slipping into an uncanny valley where it's like it doesn't. Oh, that's interesting. Resemble sex enough to be hot but it's like recognizable, mm. but like, I think there's, there's this space where it can potentially be repulsive. Um, if it's, if it's too detailed and specific. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Was there anything in wild lovers, Kim, that you found hot at all? <laughs> um, some of the, the back and forth between like joy and slim. Oh, oh you cut out fun. again there. Yeah. Could you oh. start over? Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're yeah back. go ahead. Okay. Um, some of the back and forth dialogue between Joy and Slim, like when she's going over um, and first um, starting to model for him, like some of mm. some of that was fun. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's so male gazy that it's yeah, kind of difficult yeah. for like I'm not the audience, you know, um, yeah. and so it's difficult for me to really find it exciting or, or titillating. Um, unless I kind of internalize the male gaze, yeah, which we, yeah, which, male... yeah. Yep. Yep. Hey, why were there so few female writers of sex novels in the sixties? I mean, since they use pseudonyms, yeah, they could I... easily assume a male thing, but you know, in all of my research, I came up with two. Wow. Well, I, I noticed in your show notes that, um, people were getting arrested and imprisoned for this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking maybe, well, it, it might have been harder to get into the door as a woman, first of all, but like it might have also be seen as like drawing too much attention to a work that was at the time risky. Yeah. Um, and even though it probably would have sold really well, um, you know, yeah. to have, like especially for a male I audience. Think so too. Although yeah. I think that the, the ideas of gender were so stratified yeah. in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, um, and, you, and you have to remember, these books weren't sold in bookstores. They were sold on newsstands and cigar stores, places where men would frequent. Right. Like like you Playboys know? or something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they would compete with each other with these crazy covers. So a woman buying one of those, th- that would have to be hard. They, it would only be mail order, I would think. 
however, they were easy to to hide. They were easy to dispose of. So I think there were women readers, but I just haven't been able to find very many women writers of this stuff. Yeah. And that's a damn I, shame. I, I know. Yeah. I mean, I can only guess that maybe it was just still too taboo for a woman to be writing candidly about sex, like mm. even under a pseudonym. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think you're right. However, you know, the money was so good. Um, you have to think that it would attract some women who would be willing to take those risks in order to make that kind of money. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I mean, um, I guess um, there are pseudonyms like that still haven't been traced, like um, in terms of like the identity of the person yes. behind them. Okay. Yeah. So, so there could be more women than it seems. Yes, exactly. I, I hope so. you're right. I I'd have to do more research, but there are, um, you know, it's funny. You, 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 Nowadays, because of the internet, you can get, you have access to more information about these kinds of things because people love niche things and the 60s mm-hmm. uh, sex novels are very big. However, they're, they're not interested, collectors and readers are not so much interested in the novels themselves as is the covers. The, yeah. Of the oh, that the cover, sense. the package. The Yeah. Right. That does make sense. I read one make- critical thing that, that said that, that observed that many, uh, some readers and critics uh, believed mistakenly that Ori Hit was a pseudonym for a lesbian writer. Oh yes, and, I yeah, thought that was good. <laughs> and that seemed, yeah, that that seemed like kind of a wild swing, is because the 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 yeah they probably don't know about as much about lesbians or about literature, but uh, yeah, that yeah and, because I mean, the, and the totally insight, missed the, the, missed the, the opportunity the, to oh sorry. <laughs> Um, I wanted to say that most of Ori Hitt's books were paperback originals, meaning that they appeared only in paperback, although he did write some hardcovers. He had pseudonyms, and I think you guys find this interesting, including Kay Adams, Joe Black, Roger Normandy, Charles Verne, and Nicky Weaver. I love Nicky (laughs) Weaver. Isn't that great? That's a great name. Publishers include Avon, Beacon, later a softcover library, Chariot, Domino, Wow. Ember Library, Gaslight, Key Publishing, Cozy, McFadden, Midwood, Novel, PEC, love to know what those stand for, yeah. Red Lantern, <laughs> Sabre, Unibooks, Valentine Books, Vantage Press, Vest Pocket, and Wisdom House. Wisdom House. <laughs> <laughs> a sex novel for Wisdom House. Yeah. Wow. Although there's a there's a strong market for hits paperback originals and prices are going to be high for the most part. I found that you could buy many of the paperbacks for as little as 10 bucks. If you didn't mind condition, if you were just looking for readers copies and mostly you can find them on eBay, ABE books. And interestingly, Etsy Hmm. has an interesting collection of them. Prices on amazon.com are impossible. So I would not recommend uh, uh, picking them up there. And I will also do a special for uh, Wild Lovers at paperbackshow.com on my online bookstore, groveusedbooks.com. I'll do a 50% discount for people. And uh, all you got to do is go to paperbackshow.com to find out more. And that's our show this week. I want to thank my guests, Cody and Kim, for coming on the show and sharing their ideas, their obscenities, their blasphemy, and their comments. You can find out more about them and their works at kimvodica.com and codygoodfellow.com. Be sure to check out the complete show notes at paperbackshow.com along with a transcript of the entire podcast. And and maybe even as bonus material, us reading a chapter from yes. Wild Lovers. I, I was yes. just going to have that next. We're going right. to have bonus material. Those These two wonderful people are going to read and share their fun of, of scenes from Wild Lovers. So sure. use, <laughs> use that contact form if you have thoughts or questions or comments. Uh, Paperback Show is hosted on Transistor, uh, also at paperbackshow.com. Please consider uh, subscribing. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Cody and Kim, for being on the show, and we'll see you all next time. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Ricky. It was a pleasure. <laughs>